And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf with very special guest Genevieve Valentine on the Coot Street Podcast! I just love to let him fade out. I mean, I think we could... If, Genevieve, if you want to go along, we could make him do that again and just see if he can get it for 30 seconds, 45 seconds. I Whatever. think with that new podcasting mic, he could really make it go for a long time. <laughs> You could back out of the room slowly doing it. We could try it out. Well, well, I could. The real problem is that if I did it long enough, you'd be backing out of the room. And then we wouldn't have any podcast at all. <laughs> so so rather than sort of being concerned about my lung capacity, Gary, welcome, Genevieve. It's wonderful to have you back on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I am excited to be here. It's been quite a couple of years since we spoke to you last. When did we speak last? Oh, we spoke last in 2012 on this very podcast. You, you've forgotten entirely, haven't you? I have the memory of a goldfish these days. I forgot this until you emailed me. <laughs> um, I'm blaming November, and after November, I'm going to have to somehow get my memory back using children's games. But yes, for right now, assume I have forgotten everything that ever happened unless wow. it aired on TV. <laughs> unless it aired on television. That means you, you've already forgotten Interstellar and the like. Are we going to talk about? Are we no. going to talk about Interstellar? Well, we we we, we, we can probably go there in a minute. I, I, before we get to things like that, I want to I want to thank you for giving us the girls at the Kingfisher Club, which I thought was lovely, and I've recommended to people as a possible holiday present. And congratulations on Catwoman. Thank you so much for both of those things. I am thrilled at the reception girls at the Kingfisher Club has gotten. Um. One of the people in my reading group was so surprised that her only note on the first draft was, hardly anybody died. Did you write this? <laughs> but the reception has been so nice, and I am so thrilled. And thank you so much for Catwoman. Uh, the reception for that has been incredibly interesting. How, well, how did you come to be writing comics? Well... It is, a, it is a two-pronged effort that I had no idea would ever come together in the slightest. Mm -hmm. um, one of them is I had read them as, you know, an 11 and 12-year-old until I ran out of money and they had an X-Men crossover where it was like eight books at once and I could not keep up with it and I ended up dropping it in the middle. And so as far as I know, the X-Men are still on, like, in a gladiatorial arena on a planet far away in peril and they've just been frozen there since I was 12. Um, <laughs> I could never finish it. There was so much going on, and I was 12. Um, and then the other half of it is I ended up moving to New York and living with a roommate who ended up getting a job at DC, um, met a guy who worked at Vertigo Comics. She moved to Marvel. He stayed at Vertigo, and he got called up at the beginning of this year, I guess, uh, to become the new Bat Group editor because the Bat Group editor had jumped suddenly to Marvel Comics. Okay. Um and he got into the role and said, I am going to change up everything that I can. I want, you know, fresh eyes on everything. And he came home and said, who do we know who writes stuff? And Janine went, Genevieve. And he's like, oh, right. <laughs> and so I got the, I got the phone call because I knew, I knew someone for 10 years who ended up accidentally having someone at the right time who knew who I was which yeah. is incredibly roundabout and so bad for giving advice to people. People are like, how do I get into comics? And I'm like, know how to pitch something on the fly and then wait 10 years. 
Because it's, it's all who you know, not what you, you know. And, and so, how the long are you? Was. So, how how long is it that you're hooked up for with Catwoman now? Well, the first phone call that we talked about, it was a single arc, uh, and the arc is about six issues uh, for a monthly comic, anyway. And we talked about a single arc, and the pitch that got me in was based on the fact that he told me the new status quo was going to be, what if Catwoman was a mob boss? And I went, holy crap, I will call you back in five minutes with a pitch. <laughs> um, and I wrote him one in literally, I think, ten minutes. Uh, I, have never, I, have, I have never come up with a pitch that fast in my life. Uh, and the original one was six issues. The yep. first couple have been so well received that we're now talking about doing another arc or two together. Nothing is official yet, but you are breaking the news that I am probably the writer of Catwoman for longer than six months. Oh, wow. Congratulations. And that starts, with issue 30, that starts with issue 36 that just came out? Uh, no, it starts with issue 35, which came out in October. Okay. Um, which spun out of events in Batman Eternal. Um, and it's such, a, it's such a change of direction that it's essentially a reboot in some ways. Because when we left her, she was doing an adventure far away from Gotham. And then on 35, we come back and she is... She's right in the middle of being a mob boss. Um, you see, this, this, this is where I appreciate you the chance to do. <laughs> see, this is where you and I have something else in common. You see, because you're saying that that that, that long ago Genevieve had to give up reading comics because of the financial impost of following long, complicated X Men arcs, and I've only in the last couple of years got come back to comics because of the iPad, like everybody else. And what I found is. You can't just buy a series like everything crosses over to 95 other things and and you make it sound like I need to read 400 comics before I read your comic. Do I have to read 400 the comics? The bad news is I think that's correct. <laughs> I am sorry to tell you that it is super intertwined. Um, the good news is mine actually you can read just knowing that she is now a mob boss. Okay. So you can pick it up on 35 and just knowing that's the status quo, you can go straight through without having to read anything else first. Okay. And so okay, that's encouraging to me because I've had the same reaction that Jonathan has, and I gave up reading comics probably when I was. T Hello. Was well, the this guy you're talking about totally that you made the deal with to put on his income tax return? His job is back group editor. Bat group editor. I actually think that they sometimes call it the bat office, but I have never had the guts to ask them flat out if they call it the bat office. <laughs> oh come on. I'm just okay. saying, if it's true, it's amazing, but I don't want to be the one to learn it's not true. I'm just going to pretend that's what they call it. Okay, so rather than than falling down particular rabbit holes, I'm going to want to pull back a little bit. I want to sort of mm -hmm. attempt to reset a scene. It's two years ago. The World Fantasy Awards nominations have just come out. Uh, you and I, you came onto the podcast with Gary. I think you were at ReaderCon or wherever it was. We talked about them. And at that point... Uh, Mechanique, I think, was out, but nothing else was. You went on to win the Crawford Award for that. You know, maybe just been announced or something. What happened? There's been like 400 short stories, I think, and 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 <laughs> that, about 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 150 this year have come out. And then there's been what novellas? Because there's a new novella out. There's a new novel. There's what's happening? What's happening? How, what happened? Uh, part you of went, that was. Yeah. Part of that was, if I was going to do it, I was going to do it as in, as 
dedicatedly as I could. Oh my God, I'm a writer. Dedicatedly? What is the matter with me? <laughs> um, <laughs> you mean in as, as dedicated a manner as possible? Um, all the part. Um, and the other part of that was that in early 2013, I quit my day job. Oh, okay. So uh-huh. I no longer had any kind of backup. So writing went from something that I did when the muse struck me to something that I had better do to make a living. Have I shocked both of you? No, I mean, look, look. if you're managing to make a living as a writer, I take my hat off to you. It's it's not a simple thing to do. Were it is terrified? not a simple thing to do. Um, it's not a simple thing to do, and it's not something I would necessarily recommend to everyone. Um, I appreciate it deeply because what I was doing for a day job was just the sort of normal executive assistant stuff that was not particularly fulfilling, so there was no reason for me to stay there as soon as it became viable for me to do something else. But at the same time, it means that my writing brain is now on for about 18 or 19 hours a day. Mm-hmm. And whether that's TV recaps or movie reviews or writing long-form essays or writing short stories or writing novels, my brain is going about 18 or 19 hours a day without stopping. <laughs> that sounds tiring. <laughs> Well, it's the reason I have no short-term memory left, certainly. <laughs> well, you have enough short-term memory to remember everything that happens on Sleepy Hollow, which I can't remember the beginning of each episode by the end of it. That is a show that does and not it, need you to remember anything. It will remind you a hundred times of the nonsense that it is that it is committed to for the 40 minutes only, because by the next 40 minutes, everything will have changed. Okay, maybe that okay, that makes me feel good. That makes me realize I'm not supposed to necessarily understand this kind of narrative, if oh, that's no. what you want to call it. Oh no. I mean we're halfway through the second season and they just figured out that there is a magical King Arthur sword buried in the woods outside Sleepy Hollow that is the key to <laughs> defeating the devil that has never come up before in a season and a half. <laughs> this show does not care. Is it the worst T V show ever? No. Um, The first season I actually loved a lot. It had a lot of the small things that, for me, are more important than a coherent plot, because there are many shows that have coherent plots that do not interest me. Um, But it had really diverse casting that wasn't about how diverse it was, so it was never like, this is a message that we are sending. It had a chance at historical revision that actually occasionally branched out into the idea that the history that you have heard is the one that has been made by the white men who were in charge. So there was that certain historical Mm -hmm. awareness that managed to step past a lot of the awkward stuff that we could have gotten into. Um, The leads have great chemistry. There were some total goofball moments. It was basically like X-Files where nothing really mattered or would be sad. Like it was great. Um, the second mm-hmm. season, I am not so sure. The second season, I feel like, has really been struggling. Is it because they've run out of the things to talk about, or they've suddenly realized they had something kind of decent going on and they needed to, like, become more serious? I think I think a little of the second one. I know that they went from 13 episodes to 18 episodes, so I understand that the pacing must have been really weird for the second season because suddenly you have another third of a season to deal with. Um, mm-hmm. But, like, they introduced some blonde guy who suddenly had all of the answers instead of Abby's sister having all of the answers. And it's like, I actually liked Abby's sister perfectly fine. I am not sure why this dude is suddenly wandering around. 
And then he was sort of her love interest, but now he's sort of not because everyone in the world was going, we don't want this. Um, it's very, I, it's very weird. I don't know. Plus you have the Katrina problem, which I find incredibly interesting, not just in this show, but sort of as a narrative structure overall, where we have Katrina, who is, we are told over and over, incredibly powerful, but all we ever see her do is do it totally wrong and make things worse. So this is, this is, no, this is, no, this is, uh. This is Ichabod Crane's wife, am I right? That is correct. Yep. And in the first season, she was trapped in purgatory and trying to help them out by, like, delivering exposition, but never anything useful. She would just kind of portent something and then fade away in a hurry. Uh, and then in the second so season, they brought her out of purgatory, and she was a hostage. Like, it's it's a disaster. <laughs> and she's not a very good witch. So, so no, she's like she's Sabrina in a... you Wait, Gary, are you caught up? No, I don't know if I'm caught up or not. I, I have it on, and I'm answering emails, and I look up, and something is on fire, and there's a big thing with horns coming up out of the ground. Um, <laughs> okay, it sounds like you're caught up. That's about right for okay. any episode of Sleepy Hollow. <laughs> that is, in fact, all of them, is it? That is, that is most of the episodes of Sleepy Hollow. Um, and so there's been a lot of episodes recently where when she has to do witchcraft, she faints or is hurt or can't finish it. And so either Abby or her sister takes over. And it's like, wait, are you telling me that she's the most powerful witch that ever lived? And these two women who have no witch training whatsoever are able to take over from her at a moment's notice and do it better? Wow. Like, why is she here? Why is she here? <laughs> So you're blogging about this about Sleepy Hollow like every week on the on your on your personal blog. Are you doing? Uh, I actually I'm actually recapping it for IO9. Ah, okay, because I just saw it on oh. your blog. Okay, and is and so is that the main television writing you're doing at the moment, or writing about television you're doing at the moment? Uh, I'm recapping at the AV Club. Uh, I just finished Boardwalk Empire, which was. To write about, like the show was not always 100% there, but there was always something amazing going on. Mm -hmm. Mm. Gary, what did you say? Um, Okay, if Gary asked a question, I missed it. No, what I was saying was the board part. Well, since we supposedly talk about fantastic things here, I think you could you could view Boardwalk Empire as a slightly alternate history, couldn't you? I think you absolutely could. I mean, it's straight up an alternate history, and there are elements of magical realism, particularly, I think, in the fourth and fifth seasons that start to creep in. Uh, mm-hmm. the, more they, the more they diverge from history, I think the more that it got sort of, at its best, a David Lynchian sense of reality where, like, nothing quite ever fit together in a way that was satisfying. It was purposely unsettling all the time. And I love mm-hmm. that. I love it so much. Um, and Rain, actually, is the other one I was recapping for AV Club for a while. And that one is absolutely an alternate history. And they keep pulling back from their fantastic elements. And I think it's hilarious. Because if they think that they are pretending, they are not. But then do you think they're going to end well, up doing... And I've not watched Rain at all. Do you think they're going to end up doing what Purse of Interest did and have to end up embracing it? You know, like, Purse of Interest sort of wandered around about being a science fiction television show or not before finally having to dive in and be a complete science fiction show that is now. 
Do you think the same will be true of Rain? Question. I think that there are certain expectations of a science fiction show that they that a show might want to avoid at first. I think it was very smart of Person of Interest to introduce itself as a procedural, which gets a lot more push from the network than a science fiction show, which everyone automatically assumes will only be a cult classic, even if it becomes successful. So in some ways, it's purely marketing. Yeah, there's a, there's a um, phrase. Wayne, I think uh, it's... Hmm? Go ahead. I was going to say one of the phrases... I see in mainstream newspaper and, and, and magazine reviews is the phrase genre television. And what they now call genre television doesn't refer to mysteries or westerns or romances. It always refers to science fiction or fantasy. It it's does. It's just an odd term. Well, now mysteries are procedurals. Everything else is a drama. Yeah. <laughs> um, and genre is the ones that they assume will either fail or go to the CW and do very well for a hundred years as people pretend to be stumped as to why. <laughs> <laughs> because after all, it would seem that the most successful, not only the most successful TV shows around are genre t shows pretty much, but the ones they're planning are all genre TV shows now as well. I mean, it seems like you can't turn around without some, some part of your bookshelf falling onto the, t onto the television screen. That is absolutely right. Um, and yet they are, they've already cancelled Constantine, apparently. But was that cancelled, or was really that actually in hiatus thing? I think that not like ordering anything episodes. beyond the initial 13 is sort of baiting the fans to prove that they want it, which, again, is very interesting. It's the sort of thing that I'm not sure you could have done as effectively before social media. Yeah. It's definitely possible. I mean, it happened with Star Trek, it happened with X-Files, it has happened. But I definitely yeah. think that at this point, with a show that costs a lot to produce, like Constantine, they are more than happy to throw it to social media and like basically gather tweets to prove to marketers that it's possible. I don't know. I find it fascinating, weird but fascinating, that TV at this point is interactive to the degree that it is. I was going to say, I mean, the, really the relationship between the audience and the television has changed pretty dramatically in the last five or ten years. And now there is this idea that there's a real feedback loop between what's successful, what people want to see, and what they don't want to see. Uh, and you start getting television shows that would appear that are almost being rewritten on the fly to interact with what people want, as expressed on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. That's definitely happened with shows like Arrow, where at first they had planned for him to have a different love interest, and then fan support for Felicity got so big that they wrote the entire show to accommodate that pair. Yeah. And, I mean, looking ahead, I mean, obviously you are enjoying and loving Sleepy Hollow. You obviously have very few positive thoughts about the future of Constantine. <laughs> and honestly, uh, I have to admit, I didn't really watch Arrow, so I only became aware of how spectacularly wooden it is by watching The Flash, which isn't great, but became even more wooden and difficult when they did crossover characters and suddenly went, oh my god, the, 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 you know, here is Arrow and the Flash, and they talked suddenly like they were chiseling their words out of actual wood. And yet it now... It is the CW. Yeah. Well, but, but even the, so... The chiseled. If the words are also chiseled, that's just a bonus. <laughs> But, it, but the Flash really, uh, the Flash is the one series, and I've watched some of that, that reminds me of reading a comic book as a kid. Uh, in other words, it moves very, very fast. The dialogue mm -hmm. in it is very infantile in the way that it should be, I suppose. 
Uh, I, I don't know what the plots are, but, but it felt like a comic book more than the Arrow did to me. I think that's a very interesting point. I definitely think that the Flash is trying to have more fun than Arrow. I feel like Oliver kills about three people a week on Arrow. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, which is fine if that's how you're going to go, like by all means. But it definitely cuts down on the idea that this is a fun comic book adaptation. Very much. Um, it's a long way from the was it the early '90s adaptation, mm-hmm. which was really. Fair, no one wanted to stick close to that adaptation. Come on, <laughs> come on. No one wanted that. No, I, I, I wasn't arguing for a second that we were going to go back and revisit <laughs> the you know the, 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 that kind of flash, which seemed to carry some of the same elements of the sort of cheesy '70s television into the '90s at a time when we didn't really need it anyway. And I certainly didn't think we were going to get it in 2014. But they haven't gone for as as gritty a look as they could have in, you know, the you know, the Flash. I mean, as you say, it's fun, and nor is it well when it's not crossing over with the Arrow. Nor is it quite as wooden or stilted as it might be. I don't think. I feel like I can't say much about crossovers, given that I'm currently writing a comic in which I am borrowing Batman, and occasionally we have to check continuity and make sure that Batman is not flying far afield to tackle some bad guy so that he can actually appear <laughs> at Selena's doorstep at the appropriate moment. Well, you mean you have to have continuity across comic books so that you have to coordinate with whoever's writing Batman to make sure he can be in the same place at the same time? Well... Gotham is a very elastic city, I am learning. You can sort of have Batman show up wherever you want on the assumption that unless he is off doing something very particular, he's going to be hanging around Gotham, poking his head into everyone else's business all the time, whether they ask him to or not. I have some Batman feelings. We will all be fine. Um, (laughs) Wouldn't that really give you the shits if you were living in Gotham, honestly? Just oh my everywhere. god, my first issue, my first issue of Catwoman is he shows up uninvited at a party that she is attending, and she is like, literally, what are you doing here? Like, <laughs> who asked you? Get out. <laughs> it was probably my proudest writing moment <laughs> in a long time. It's like, finally, I get to yell at Batman. <laughs> get out. No one asked for your advice. But, but okay. There was actually... Um, there's a just a parenthetical note because I don't think very many people remember it. But oh, I'm going to say sometime in the early '90s, Harlan Ellison wrote a Batman comic book, uh, which was published as part of the regular Batman comics. And and the the essential plot Harlan was never invited back after this, of course. The essential plot was that every time Batman tries to rescue somebody, he completely misunderstands the situation, and they're not in danger, and he manages to damage somebody's grandmother he manages to interrupt the tv show that's being shot everything he does is wrong and i just <laughs> felt that was such a nice thing to do that i guess the dc people at that point didn't think it was i'm it's, shocked it's still shocked sure you can that. <laughs> yeah, it, it does it does take you aback doesn't it? you think oh our superheroes are klutz yeah thanks but okay i want to go back uh, I was going to say, I want to go back to something Genevieve you said about Boardwalk Empire, because what you said about that turning fantastical or almost fantastical reminded me of something I wanted to ask you about the girls at the Kingfisher Club, which more or less oh. does the reverse. I mean, not, I'm not just talking about being in the same time period, roughly in the 20s, but you start off with a fairy tale, which is completely fantastic. You 
cast it into a situation, into a historical setting, which is wildly improbable and unlikely, but <laughs> never actually quite fantastic. Okay. In other words, there could theoretically, I mean, given the laws of physics and nature as we know them, there could be there could be this really awful father who keeps 12 daughters imprisoned in an upper um, east side mansion. And, and then the story goes through one set of really improbabilities after another, the way a fairy tale does. But if I'm not mistaken, it never crosses the line into what we would call a fantasy novel. Is that, first of all, is that right? And secondly, have you gotten any feedback on that at all? Um, that is correct. The, yes, the events of the book stay plausible in a purely physical sense. So, yes, yes nothing happens that, that could not feasibly be achieved by a taxi that could not go more than 30 miles an hour if you are just south of Union Square and need to get up to the 80s before dawn, how long would it take you, etc. Um, so but there's definitely, all the I think, a sense, a sense of the unreal that came with the 20s themselves because it was such an enormous social shift that everything about it feels surreal. And when I was doing research for the book and reading about it, everyone seems sort of marveling at how fast things changed in post-World War One, especially the States. Mm. Because mm. post-World War One, it seemed like almost overnight, everything you wore changed. Like your ability to get a job changed. The industries that would allow you to actually get a career and like move on your own, the places where you could find a room or an apartment to live on your own before marriage, which had been unheard of, like boom, 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 it all lined up. It was historical serendipity in a way if you were a young woman trying to make a life for herself outside of the house things opened up for you unimaginably um and that's definitely one of the things that i wanted to capitalize on because of course the strongest reaction to young women going out and making lives for themselves was the victorian patriarch who had been used to having everything he did be the law of the house and suddenly right. Suddenly, women didn't care what he had to say anymore. There was a flapper magazine uh, where the entire logline of the magazine was not for old fogies. <laughs> like, cool. women had stopped caring. Um, and so there was this very weird <clears throat> sort of friction going on between the Victorian men who were writing for Punch and that kind of thing, mm. who assumed that their satire was commenting on the events of the day that should be happening and everything else. And the women who realized that they could go out, be a secretary during the day, and then smoke and drink all night. And they were like, yeah, you can keep your magazine. I don't care. Bye. Mm -hmm. And so there, it's definitely an unreal situation. But I'm not sure that it's entirely off from how unreal it would have felt okay, that's to actually be living through it. it. But the, the, the other thing, of course, which is, uh, I, I imagine psychologists who study fairy tales would have asked you about this though that the that the the 12 dancing princesses in in the grim fairy tale are are ciphers basically they're indistinguishable one from another and mm -hmm. you've got 12 distinct characters which by the way is difficult to do when you've got 12 people to keep sorted out i could pretty much figure <laughs> out who those work um that must have been a challenge to write though you know there are a couple of videos of the women on my mom's side of the family gathered together at Christmas cooking 
Mm-hmm. And I don't think anything could be more chaotic than everyone in my mom's side of the family in the kitchen talking at the same time. Um, and that definitely was one of the things that I referred to when I had 12 sisters all yelling at each other. And I was like, okay, statistically, the three loudest sisters would have the most to say. Like, Basically, you break it down like an action scene. And you have to be like, okay, this car is at this corner at this time. And then it heads over here. And of course, the bridge is going to be going up by then. But it's all women fighting. Um, (laughs) which sounds terrible they're not fighting for terrible reasons they're fighting because they're a supportive family that's been locked in a house for 12 years and they're all losing their minds right Um, but in regards to the original fairy tale one of the reasons that it always stuck with me more so than i think the ones that are sort of supposed to stick with you um because one of the things I found out after I wrote this book was that a lot of people had never heard of the 12 Dancing Princesses. They were learning about the story by reading my book, um, which in terms of the feedback that you asked for has been the single most surprising piece of feedback. I am genuinely surprised. My daughters know the fairy tale very well, sadly because of a horrible Barbie movie called The 12 Dancing Princesses, but still they know the fairy tale Mm. very well, so I'm surprised. Um, Well, there was the fairy tale theater version of it. Mm. I mean... It has been referenced, I think, many times, but yeah. it does surprise me that there's sort of a 12 Dancing Princesses shaped hole for people that I guess do not actively seek out fairy tales. It's not one of the ones that comes to you. You know what I mean? Snow White does. Cinderella does. You have to find the 12 Dancing Princesses. So maybe that's what it is. But even in the original story, the thing I liked the most about it was not the dancing, was not even the fact that there were 12 sisters. It was the fact that the oldest sister and the youngest sister had personal friction. And even though the soldier liked the look of the youngest sister and is described, you know, described looking at the youngest sister with every sign of love, when it comes time for him to pick Mm. the sister he's going to marry, he picks the one who's going to inherit the throne because he's not a dummy. And I was like, that is stone cold practical. And I'm six years old and I still recognize that like, that is a dude who knows what he's doing. But of course, the first thing that you think is, why would he pick the one that he didn't love? And then you think, okay, how is that marriage going to work out? And so if you are me for years, you think about that and you think about how weird it is that when confronted with a situation where there is a lot at stake and a lot of political gain, that some people make the most pragmatic possible choices. And how does that feed into the idea of people, sisters who ostensibly love each other having that kind of tension? And so for me, the seed of the story had always been there because there was this weird tension between sisters who were not the ugly stepsisters. They were all sisters. Um, And then it turns out that they are 100% correct that the soldier who had been following them around was a total jerk. Like everything pans out exactly the way the oldest sister had always thought it would. How did it come to be the book you chose to do after Mechanique? Yeah, I don't don't know. Um, I genuinely don't know. I wrote it, I think, shortly after Mechanique came out. Yeah. The the first draft. So I guess it was just as far from Mechanique as I could get. And the one that comes out next year is as far from either one of those. Well, I was, well, was, well, was going to say, yeah, because it's like, I mean, you've got Mechanic, which is a very literary kind of fantasy. You've got Girls at Kingfisher Club, which is a jazz age retelling of a fairy tale that's sort of fantasy, but not sort of YA, but not. 
And then you've got a hard science fiction book coming out next year, right? No, it's a political thriller. Why not? <laughs> I thought it was a hard science fiction novel. Uh, no, no, the hard science fiction novel was Dream Houses. Ah, I'm done. I'm done with spaceships for a little while. <laughs> ah, okay. So, so uh, you're, you're yes. doing Persona for for Saga Press. Correct. So tell us about Persona. Uh, Persona is a political thriller that takes place in a slightly alternate universe where the only significant thing that is different is that instead of forming the United Nations, we form the International Assembly, which takes its basic ideas from the model of the old Hollywood studio system. So your country is represented by an actual diplomat who gets everything done that needs to get done, and a young, good-looking person whose job it is to make your country seem troubled or doing well or adorable and you want to protect it in the public eye. So you get a lot of Hollywood studio-type relationships and marriages where you're supposed to hang out and look chummy when you were filming together becomes you are supposed to hang out and look chubby when your countries need a trade agreement and you want everybody to get behind what you're doing. Um, And of course, that means that nationalized press becomes something that is planned and there is no real journalism because what you're dealing with is basically the world as a fluff piece, except for snaps who are somewhere between paparazzi and free press, depending on how you want to look at them and what they're doing at that particular moment. So my book is about one of these young faces uh, who ends up coming under fire literally during an assassination attempt. And this snap who panics and helps her and then realizes that he has botched his story and stumbled into a much bigger one. And so it is them running from an assassin as I am trying to explain to you the last 50 years of running an international assembly under the auspices of teen celebrity culture. Because why not? Why not? Why not restream? <laughs> so near future political thriller. It sounds fascinating. So this is Persona, which is coming out in March? That is correct. Wow. And, and that's what you're going to be finishing almost any minute now. So because I, I, I don't want to. Oh, no, I'm finishing uh, the sequel almost any minute now. You're finishing the sequel to it. So, OK, that's done. <laughs> uh, there were there were a couple <laughs> of movies back in the because I know, you know, you know, the history of movies better than I do. There was a movie called If back in the early 60s, which was basically about teen culture taking over the world. It was like a teen version of A Clockwork Orange, only not as dark. And I'm trying to remember, it was, the title was If, dot, 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 ellipsis afterwards. And there was a Roger Corman movie called Wild in the Streets. Now, these were not the same things you're talking about. But you, when you mentioned teen culture as being a kind of an outward expression of the Hollywood uh, studio system culture, that to some extent was what they, uh, what, what they tried to manage were, were teen opinions. The Wild in the Streets movie was also about teens taking over the world in some ways. Those are like 50 years old now, and it, it amazes me, given the power of social media that we have today, that nobody has done what you're describing yourself as doing until now. I think there, I think that there are a lot of things sort of touching on that same idea. I just think that very few of them want to get into the ugly mechanics of making teen culture. There are a lot of movies about what it takes to make an image as a teenager. I mean, Mean Girls, which builds on Heather's. Oh, yeah. From, what, 30 years ago now? How old are we? Is that movie 30 years Heather's old? Is, is Heather's 30s? Is it the 80s? Yes. I think it may be the 80s. Yes, it it's is. the 80s. 
It's older oh than Genevieve, God. I'm going to guess. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, yes. So Mean Girls, which calls back to a movie from 30 years ago, Heathers, um, which I would say calls back to that weird Ed Wood movie about the girl gang that starts out robbing gas stations and then gets talked into knocking over an elementary school classroom by communists because <laughs> I have. Okay, that's yeah. one I may have missed. <laughs> I, I, I missed that one. Oh, you should not miss it. That movie is amazing. They host a pajama party and it's salacious, except that everyone is totally dressed at all times and not kissing. Um, it's so amazing. But, but yes, so there have always been... In fact, specifically, the narrative tends to be that a teenage boy, let's say, in the James Dean mold is going to be tragic. The world is going to crush him. It's toxic masculinity. The opposite narrative is true for teenage girls. If you get a bunch of teenage girls together, you have weaponized the teenage girl. And either it's against one another or it is against the outside world. Heather's was both. Mean Girls was both. Um, Um. So I think that in a lot of ways you are seeing what goes into sort of making the sociopath of the teenage girl. And you see that narrative over and over. Even Taylor Swift in her videos now, I think is doing it where it's very much about what goes into making the image that she is trying very hard to pretend is natural. And it's not. And, and the argument around Does Taylor Swift believe is very, that? I mean, uh, well, here's the thing, right? Isn't that kind of, and I, I don't, I don't know. The thing about Taylor Swift is that the argument has become whether or not she is genuine in what she is telling you. But the point has never been that she's genuine. The point is that she's kept that conversation going so long that she is now the number one selling artist in the world. Yeah. Like, that is the point. And so the answer is, it's absolutely not. It's absolutely not an unstudied thing that she is doing. Like, it is the game that everyone else is playing. She's trying to convince you that she might not be playing it because the idea that she might not be is more fascinating than someone that, like, I don't know, Lady Gaga, who's obviously playing it. Yeah. We all recognize she's playing the game. There's no question. We're done. With Taylor Swift, she's kept the conversation going for years on whether or not she's playing a game that we all know in our hearts that she's playing. I think it's I think all of that is fascinating. Always, always. (laughs) And becomes the stuff of novels if given the chance. I mean, yes. <laughs> <laughs> At some point. <laughs> yes. Forever. For the rest of my life, I could talk about the weaponizing of the teenage girl. Forever. <laughs> that sounds like a really, really scary book title, doesn't it? It would be It would be me tearing a hole through modern television and film, talking about the monstrous young woman. Maybe I should do that. Maybe I should just ditch this novel and write that book instead. No, I think you should absolutely finish the book because there's a reasonable (laughs) chance that your editor is going to be listening to this podcast. In which case, the book is already done and I am just waiting for feedback. (laughs) And so, (laughs) with a little shout out to Joe. Hi, Joe. Hi, Joe. We definitely will not distract... Now, Genevieve from writing that and have a go off and write Weaponizing the Teenage Girl, which, though, if she did it next, you should certainly buy for Saga. Don't you think, Genevieve? (laughs) No, because obviously the book that is already finished is going to be the next one that Saga buys, because why wouldn't they, since it's done? Well, no, I mean, like, after that, though. When you finish the book you're doing right now, (laughs) right? I mean, we might as well get them committed. I'm sure Joe will will, will tweet tomorrow that he's happy to pick up uh, Weaponizing the Teenage Girl. I'm already looking forward to it, in fact. I am actually. I think it's a fascinating book to do. 
It's so, really taking everything I have not to write notes for this really loudly on my horribly ticky-tacky <laughs> keyboard as we are talking about this. I'm, I'm so in two more years, when you interview me and that book is coming out, you will know that it started on this podcast. Absolutely, because, I mean, after all, if I, if I can piece your calm, relaxed, uncommitted life together, <laughs> in between writing the occasional short story which you do, and there's about four or five came out this year, including several very, very good ones like The Insects of Love over on Tor.com. And Thank you. A, it's a great story. It's a great story. Thank you. And a very fine hard SF novella called Dream Houses, which has just come out. Mm-hmm. And being ensconced in the bat office and knocking out cat stories for the next mm-hmm. six or nine months, yes, or beyond, who knows? Hopefully, fingers crossed. And writing uh, Persona and its sequels, because I assume it's an ongoing thing, I don't know. And now, of course, weaponizing the teenage girl, you watch television. Is that about right? That's about right. Well, you In watch my television. free time, I watch television. But actually, I, I have to ask you, since you are sort of you know, juggling all of this and you're just about finished the sequel to Persona, which is very exciting to hear, I have to say... Um, you must be pretty excited as a genre TV commentator about 2015, though. There is going to be a lot. I am stoked. I mean, you could put down all of your writing and do nothing but watch, what, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell and American Gods and The Expanse and Gateway and Foundation and a million other things, right? Uh, ancillary, ancillary justice and ancillary sword have also been optioned, and I would like to see those go to like go to series immediately. Yep. Even though I was on panels at Capclave earlier this year talking about it as inherently unfilmable, mm-hmm. so now that I've declared it unfilmable, I can't wait to see what they do with it. <laughs> well, you figure it's either going to be brilliant or such an epic mistake that it'll be entertaining. It's just, I mean, it's such a beautifully done book, and. If they can manage to find an actress who can convey everything without the need for a voiceover, I think they've got it locked in. The trick is finding that actress. Yeah. Because, I mean, surely one of the enjoyments about watching modern era genre television to skip skip around, like in this in crazy, crazy conversation of skipping around, is the epic <laughs> stuff up, is at least as much fun as, as the great TV show. Oh, bless. It's often, frankly, it's often better. <laughs> But but that's me talking, and I recognize that my ability to sit through 10 hours of terrible TV and clap my hands and go, this is amazing, is not what everyone can do. <laughs> I mean, surely that's what pulls you back to Sleepy Hollow. Surely for a chunk of time, that's what's pulled us back to Gotham, which is sort of kind of awesome, kind of, kind of rubbish. Gotham is two very different shows, and one of them is so enjoyable, and the other one is such a drag, and it varies from scene to scene so violently that you can hear the gears grinding to a halt after a commercial break if it comes back to the wrong one. I would agree with I, that. It's fascinating. And the stuff that I like is not the stuff that anybody else likes, apparently. Why? Which stuff do you like? I like young Bruce turning into a sociopath and watching the men in his life totally fail him. I like That's my favorite part. Oh, wow, you really are lonely. I know. <laughs> no one else. No one else gives one shit about that. that poor kid. So, so you kind of think that 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 you, you, you think monster. You think the Har the Harvey kind of TV you know cop show is kind of like meh. Forget about that. And just show Here's me. Here's what I think. Yep. I think that 
the Jim Gordon against Young Penguin show is fascinating. I think clogging that up with a girlfriend who's a non-character and the cop, the, the random cop lesbian who's a non-character, who should be a character because she's a character in the comics, but is just uh, dreadful somehow on the show. And poor Donald Logue trying desperately to drag comedy out of something that is inherently not working as a comedy right now, despite the fact that we have the Balloon Man as an early standout villain is a mess. I think if they cut that down and it was Jim Gordon versus Young Penguin and Jim Gordon couldn't get anywhere because Gotham's police department had given up and the Penguin was rising through the ranks of the underworld, it would be a lot cleaner and it would make a lot more sense. Right now it's trying to be about eight different things. The reason I like the Bruce thing is because it is trying to be exactly one thing and it is doing that very well. You see, I always would have said that uh, based on watching, I haven't watched the last three or four episodes for, since, well in fact since we went to Washington. Um, up but up to that point, what I would have said was, ooh, by and large, the, the Bruce stuff is getting in the way of the the, the Gordon versus the Penguin, etc. stuff. And I love Fish, though I know people who hate that character, you know, which I don't understand. I think she's brilliant. Well, that's the problem with having two totally different shows, because you are correct that the Bruce stuff is getting in the way of the police stuff in the same way that the police stuff gets in the way of Bruce stuff. Like, they are two totally different shows. And also, because I'm demented, I just want Barbara Gordon to give birth to Batgirl and get out of the way. Oh my god, she's so boring. Why is she so boring? <laughs> like, it's the Katrina problem. We're told she's incredibly interesting and, like, intelligent and helpful and a spitfire and the love of his life. And we don't see any of it at all. We see nothing. Nothing. The only interesting thing she's done in seven or eight episodes is accidentally have some marijuana maybe stowed away in the hood of her bathrobe. Like, this is not a character that is working. No one cares. But is the problem, um, actually, that the TV show is spectacular, so spectacularly expensive to make that they have to make it appeal to everyone? And so they put everything in. Well, they're making they're trying to make it appeal to everybody who's ever bought a DC comic, certainly. Yeah. yeah. Because if they were trying to appeal to everyone, they would not have brought Barbara Gordon in so early. They would have given him some preliminary love interests where there was actually some tension happening, yeah. rather than have him stuck in a failing marriage in the episode that begins the series. Yeah. So, um, so tell me, why aren't you a showrunner? Oh my god, because the show that I ran would be a disaster. <laughs> It would be an episode of people staring sadly out their windows as it rained, followed by an episode of people screaming at each other and flinging things because I enjoy camp and I enjoy sadness. And I would have to work very hard not to get in my own way if I was actually in charge of a show that had potential for either one of those things. Yeah. Um, that all makes sense to me, I think. I, I, I want to see the TV show you want to make, frankly, right after you write The Mechanization of the Teenage Girl. Or weaponization. I'm waiting for that. But, the mechanization of the teenage girl is the sequel to Mechanique. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a question, Gary? I was going to wonder if we were going to talk about movies at all, because I yes. did. Uh, Jim, we talked a bit at World Fantasy. You, you, you told me that I should just stay away from Interstellar, and uh, I went to see it this afternoon. So, I think I don't know if you're right or not, but. <clears throat> You've, you've had um, impatient things to say about that, about Prometheus, and about uh, Elysium. Mm-hmm. I figured out a way to defend movies like that. 
not not in narrative terms. Okay, uh, Prometheus is, to my mind, harder to defend than either Elysium or Interstellar. Um, I would agree. (laughs) Well, okay, that's that's a backhanded compliment. But (laughs) wouldn't Prometheus make a great PowerPoint? Prometheus would make a fantastic PowerPoint presentation about worst practices in terms of first contact. That would well, maybe not, be all of this before. No, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about, uh, I, I have this notion, partly from dealing with grandkids who, go, who, who like to see movies like, um, uh, I can't read a shark, shark Boy and, and something or other. Lava Girl. Uh, Lava Girl. Oh, yeah. God. Okay. <laughs> I learned how to watch movies from them. You watch movies to get from one, basically, great still photo to another. And Prometheus, no, you, you have to eliminate the plot. You have to eliminate all the leaden dialogue. You put up a series of slides and talk about them. It's a terrific PowerPoint movie. (laughs) Well, okay, wait. So let's talk about this, because in terms of Interstellar, I believe that I told you at the time, the visuals are amazing. It's the story that fails it. So I would agree with you absolutely there. Yes. However, Uh, there were were bits in, there were were individual scenes, which if you took them out of Interstellar, would have possibly worked in another Oh, man, I loved all of the Matt Damon stuff. I thought the Matt Damon stuff in Interstellar was great. Uh, If they had substituted the hour of Matthew McConaughey manfully crying about the children that he abandoned, (laughs) then I think that, and put a little more Matt Damon in there, or at least a little more moral (laughs) conflict in there, instead of him just constantly crying over the kids he willfully abandoned, (laughs) then we would have had a much better movie. I got cut off again, didn't I? Yes, you did. You've been cut off about six times. That's okay, I was being mean to Interstellar. Okay. Well, it's, mostly it's, to Matthew it's, McConaughey. Let's be let's be fair. I I just and again we have we have the sort of thing that happens in movies where we pull in on the woman making the tearful monologue and everyone ignores it because it's considered the wrong thing and even though she was technically right the story doesn't treat it as correct the story treats the man coming to the same conclusion as the huge epiphany when she had the epiphany an hour ago and no one listened and the movie never brings it up or justifies her or anything else. And, like, that happens a lot. And I am honestly done giving that a pass. I'm done. I'm yeah. too old. So, for me, um, Interstellar was just a, a narrative a narrative failure, a visual triumph. Like, it's gorgeous. And a hilarious score. The fact that Hans Zimmer was like, what if we yes. got a church organ and just beat the crap out of it until it made every note possible? And it's like, yeah, good, perfect. <laughs> Perfect. Amazing. But it did have, to go back to my earlier PowerPoint, it did have an image at the, at the end uh, of Matthew McConaughey being lost in apparently an infinity of bookcases, um, which was just a kind of wonderful cartoony image. It really had nothing much to do with anything else in the movie, except <laughs> I like the idea that the movie had an infinity of bookcases in it. Although if you look closely, the books inside the bookcase were books like Stephen King's The Stand, um, or J.B. Priestley's Literature in Western Man. I, I want to see the movie again just so I can see what's in those bookcases. I was going to say, you cared a lot more about those bookcases than I did. <laughs> a lot more. I was looking for something had, to look I at. I had checked out by the time those bookcases came up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
So what what is the best genre film of the year then, uh, Genevieve? If, if 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 it's not the Fantastic Interstellar, which it sounds like it plainly isn't. Oh man. No. What a good question. Um, I think it's been a fantastic year for really oddball movies that you either loved or you hated, and the genre elements sort of didn't care if you liked them or not. Yeah. So for me, it's movies like Only Lovers Left Alive and Snowpiercer, where Snowpiercer is an absolute fable. It doesn't pretend to be anything else, and it has moments of bizarre comedy that are supposed to make you feel incredibly uncomfortable, and then it's totally nihilistic at the end and then you're done and it's yeah. like great thank you i really appreciate this unsettling 90 minutes on a very weird train bye love the metaphor bye it's been a good year for movies like that this is a long shot because i was uh, try again gary okay uh I don't know what's wrong at this end, and I apologize for that, but the um, the movie I mentioned to Jonathan just before we started talking, and it may not be one you've even heard of, Genevieve, was called The Babadook. <gasps> I'm so jealous you've had a chance to see that already. It's really, it's on pay-per-view. Uh, Is it? Oh my God, I know what I'm really doing tonight. Good. I cannot wait. I have been wanting to see that since I heard about it at the festival circuit earlier this year. She's such a good actress. I am ready for this movie. I'm so ready. Was it amazing? <laughs> Okay, we'll we'll check back in with you after you get a chance to see it. Here, here's another thing, and I don't know if it's on your. Don't break my heart. What's happening? No, wait. What's happening is, am I gone? No, you're there. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) this is terrible. (laughs) This has happened. A number of new movies that I've seen, some of which have not worked out as well as others. For example, Radio Free Albemuth did not work out that well. The Zero Theorem did not work out that well. But in the case of the Babadook, it's not listed on the menu. You have to go search for it in your menu of things, and you have to search for it under the word T, T-H-E. Oh, come on. Yeah, it's, it's, it's as hidden as you can make it. It is not listed anywhere on the menu, but if you search for it, it's there, at least on my cable system. Okay. Did you like it? But I loved it. Uh, I thought it was, it was not only that she's a very good actress, it was a, a, a movie written and directed by an Australian woman who I'd never heard of before. Um, and the New Yorker review started off with the interesting line, which made me fascinated, that maybe all horror movies ought to be directed by women. Because you have a situation, and I'm not going to spoil it for you. Well, yes, I am, actually. Um, <laughs> where it's kind of classic haunted house, woman in danger. It's, 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 it's a basic opening gambit of poltergeist. Mm-hmm. But all the figures, all the minor figures that show up in the film who might come to a rescue are utter failures. And it becomes more and more apparent that she is going to have to grapple with this at the same time that she herself is going insane. Yeah. And the, so the, the movie never gives you a center that you're comfortable with and never gives you a, 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 a hint that she's going to get out of this unless she thinks of something. And it's uh, yes, I, that sounds amazing. Stacy was watching it's on, it's, it's on, Yes, actually, Gary's on iTunes as well, so it's it's rentable everywhere. The, the scariest thing. <laughs> there's a lot of an Edward Gorey look to it, um, uh, because the the whole film revolves around a book that the little boy finds in his bookcase called The Babadook, 
which doesn't have a publisher on it. That's a nice detail. She can't find a publisher or an author, but it's a pop-up book of what appears to be Edward Gorey-like drawings of a top-hatted Victorian scary guy. Um, the, that's <laughs> about as horrible as it gets. Called The Babadook. The Babadook. That's, I recommend it. Okay. So you're going to watch it and we'll have to call you back. Yes. And we'll append some comments about the movie to the podcast. Maybe I will actually... I, I'll tell you my genre watching for the year just as we're equal. Gary's the, the one on the podcast who actually gets to go watch everything. I managed to have children and never see a movie again, so... I watched Guardians of the Galaxy on the, the plane. Hmm. That's like about it for this mm-hmm. year, you know. Apart, I've watched oceans of television. I can talk to you about television till it's pouring out of my ears, but movies I've seen almost nothing of this year, so... Maybe I'll have to well, watch let's talk, about, let's talk about Guardians of the Galaxy, because I think that was another movie where a lot of the space visuals are breathtaking and the story is just a lump. What did you think? I think that's a pretty good synopsis. I mean, it struck me as being in some ways a really pure version of a 1930s space opera turned into a superhero movie. Hmm, Okay. You know, because it, because it is about the space opera kind of visuals, isn't it? Belting around in space in vastly impractical kind of ways, uh, using weapons that could never possibly work, with all kinds of strange and interesting aliens. And I mean, I'd never read the account the, of the characters in the background of comic books because I'd never really read those those comics. So I wasn't familiar with Groot and all these kind of things. So they were just like strange aliens. And I actually thought that at the end of the day, for all that it had elements of being a total mess, it was a huge amount of fun. You know what? Looking at it like a 1930s serial where the bad guy shows up and almost gets beaten and almost beats someone up and then runs away because the story has to continue makes more sense than anything else anyone has tried to tell me to justify the plot of that movie. Thank you so much. (laughs) But it's what it is, isn't it? I mean, when you look at it, it's, it's like, and that's why, I mean, honestly, Guardians of the Galaxy, the movie should have been the two hour pilot for the TV show or something. Oh my god, I don't want any more of those characters. Thank you very much. For me, Guardians of the Galaxy was a two-hour movie about what it is like to enjoy Marvel movies. It was an incredibly meta experience that I did not find pleasant. Okay, fair enough. I can respect that too. But then, like, am I the only person out there who's going, I think we've had enough superhero movies now, kids. I mean, really? Uh, Am I the only one who's going, like, really, we need... Everybody gets a movie now? You are the only person. But there's some, there some that I want to see. <laughs> Which is true, but since we have to make at least ten about men before we can make any one about a woman, we're all in for a lot more superhero. Well, well I, I realize that. I mean, I, I want to see the Captain Marvel movie, and I hope it's brilliant, but I want to see it, right? And I read the, you know, the, the comics, I'm, I'm ready for it. I really, 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 really want to see the Wonder Woman movie if they can dress her sensibly. Oh, man. Let's not even get into that business. <laughs> I, I'm not... Yeah, I don't think that's... Gonna... I'm just, it's, just, it's just like if they decided to make a Xena movie. It's like, how many leather bustiers can you really get your head around? You know, it's like, no. And it's, I, just, I was showing... I mean, to really wander all over the place, my 13-year-old just got a mm-hmm. daughter, just got an iPad for her birth, birthday a couple of months ago. And we've been sharing apps and stuff, and I, sh- I gave her access to my comic collection. And she started looking at Batgirl. And this is before the most recent reboot. She's going, where did these outfits come from? Who would wear these things? These are ridiculous. 
And when she looked at some of the other stuff where it seemed like it was basically just flesh amplified and pouring out of scraps of lycra, mm. she was horrified quite quite appropriately, I thought. Correct. Like, Absolutely Ugh. so. However, Wonder Woman is the wrong hill to die on if you're going to look for practical clothing, because Wonder Woman has absolutely never looked practical in her entire life. I know. Um, Catwoman started out in a very, like, a very practical sort of calf-length purple dress with a, with a green cape, because why not? Um, so everything that has happened to her since has been less practical than your go-everywhere thievery dress. Uh, Wonder Woman always, always looked like a pinup. Yeah. Like, that was always how she looked. I am not sure... I'm not sure how you can defend both making it a practical costume and making it true to the spirit of the comics in that particular way. I think there are many ways to do it where any costume changes would be totally explained and negated and everything would be fine. But I do think that that is one of the legacy things that they are dealing with. I think her current outfit for Batman versus Superman is a disaster. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, basically she's stuck in fetish wear, right? Well, and like very nondescript muddy looking fetish wear so it's not even we're going with the old school wonder woman pinup bustier and tiny skirt with the stars all over it which at least was something that she chose because she wanted to embody american values when she came from her amazon island to fight for justice and everything else so you you've robbed her of all of that character context as well as as robbing her of any sort of dignity or ability to fight or anything else by putting her in that outfit so there's a lot going on there is. I wonder if either, either of you have seen Jill Lepore's book on the history of Wonder Woman. Uh, part I of which am was in the middle of it now, and I'm loving it. I'm loving it's, it. This guy was very strange, wasn't he? You know, I. If everyone in his in his household was okay with what was happening, then I am absolutely supportive of whatever he chose to do in his private life. Mm-hmm. Especially because not- his character was so staunchly feminist that psychiatrists were recommending against young girls reading it because they thought it was horrifically feminist which right yeah it's my favorite that's kind of my favorite they're like this is way feminist she's like not maternal she's very active and assertive and it's just the worst it's just the worst knocks him out of the hands of young girls everywhere Well, we have wandered from here to there and around and about. And I think we've had a very enjoyable conversation. I've had a great time. I don't know that we've actually managed to become coherent, but we are pretty much at the end of our hour. <laughs> and other than promising we, that we have to come back to talk about the Babadook, I yes. really want to thank you for spending the time with us this evening to talk about what been... you're doing. Thank you. This has been lovely. Do you get a chance to edit this into something resembling coherence? No, 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 no. No, it's Oh, my God. (laughs) I know. I know. What's going to happen is in about 15 minutes, I'll top and tail this, and it'll be online before dinner time. Uh, I would like to thank everyone who got all the way to the end of this (laughs) with being able to follow any part of it. But hey, but somewhere in in this podcast, there is an interesting conversation, I think, about what's happening in modern tele- modern television right now. Interesting conversation about some interesting movies. Some great news about Catwoman, and congratulations again about that. And about 
both Girls at the Kingfisher Club and Persona, and your here not currently sold but stunningly exciting new book, The Weaponization of the Teenage Girl. I'm going to tell well, you right now. I'm going to change that title, but I was going to that's say, the best title be ever. Titles on that. It's the best title better, ever. No, the, the better than is... the monstrous girl. Come on, the monstrous girl. I I got to tell you, weaponization of the teenage girl is a pretty damn fine title, but just just well, you know what? what do I know? We're going to have to take this offline, and we will have to fight about it on our own time. These poor podcast what listeners you... have been through enough. Okay. Weaponization of the teenage girl might be a good <laughs> book title. It's, it's the kind of thing that Joe Lepore is doing right now. If you wanted to actually look at. But that's a different thing from writing yes. a novel. Yes. So as this conversation slowly fades okay. into the into ether, thank you again, Genevieve. <laughs> thank you for having me. <laughs> Gary, I'll talk okay. to you next week. <laughs> talk to you next week. And until now, as ever, we remain the Crude Street Podcast.